0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Conservation Unfiltered. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 48, Benefits of Soil Disturbance and Fire. Since spring has sprung, or is at least trying to with some of these colder temperatures. Mother Nature is providing us with a lot of green scenery. And the annual green-up and last week's podcast got me thinking about how Mother Nature never leaves the ground bare. So to that end, how can we provide good, nutritious vegetation for wildlife with minimal effort? To talk about just that, I spoke with Marcus Lashley over the phone. Marcus is an assistant professor at the University of Florida, where he has focused his extension program on understanding the role of soil disturbance and fire ecology in managing wildlife habitat, and he's really looking particularly at game species. Now, I know fire isn't something that is widely used in northern states, but this gives us a chance to learn from those southern states and find out just how we can use prescribed fire to benefit turkey, deer, and other wildlife. Today on the line, I have
1: Marcus Lashley, and we are going to be discussing the benefits of soil disturbance through various methods. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, how are you? Good. Uh, can you just sort of give a quick intro to yourself so people know a little bit about your background? Sure. So uh, I grew up
2: in Alabama and always had a strong interest in hunting and fishing, and that led me into a career in conservation, and I focus mainly on deer and turkey, but also other game species and sometimes other, other wildlife species that aren't game. But uh, I went to Mississippi State University at, for my undergrad and then carried on to uh, the University of Tennessee, where I worked with Craig Harper, who's uh, well-known in the deer management world for um, habitat management related things. So I got my training there first, and then I moved on to North Carolina State University, where I studied fire ecology and how it affected uh, deer and turkey and their predators. And I've continued on with that, and I actually was a faculty member in the MSU Deer Lab For four years, and I've just recently moved to the University of Florida to start the UF Deer Lab here, where I'll focus on fire ecology and game species management. So, kind of bounced around quite a bit, but everything's focused on how to manage habitat, and I have a strong interest in game species because I'm a hunter.
1: Yeah, if I if. I had a different life where I wasn't a teacher. Uh, you have had a lot of experiences that I would have liked to have had, uh, <laughs> and I honestly, would still like to maybe get to have some of those experiences here in the future. So uh, I'm definitely interested in what you've learned. Uh, yeah. to, you know, can you tell us a little bit about why why should we do soil disturbance? Like, what what's the purpose of of doing that? How what how does it benefit wildlife? Yeah.
2: So uh, obviously you can create disturbances in many ways, but uh, the main thing that most people don't understand about disturbance, especially in the eastern United States, is that almost all of our wildlife species have always had disturbance as a natural part of their ecosystem. And because of that, disturbances really promote vegetation communities that benefit those wildlife. and our game species are are definitely you know included in that the uh you know the benefits of of disking or prescribed fire for deer are unquestionable, and it's mainly because of how it stimulates the plant community that is in reach of them so that you know that's uh, that's really what you're focused on when you're about using disturbance. you're focused on how do we manage the plant community that is below shoulder high.
1: I feel like most people, you know, we're on, I'm based on the East Coast, you know, in southwestern mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and we know about soil disturbance, but think of it in terms of crops or for hunters for food plots. Sure. And you're talking about it in sort of a more natural term, correct? Mhm. Yeah.
2: Well, it could be either one. Uh, but so the, my master's project actually was focused in upland hardwood systems, This is the southern Appalachians, but very similar to what you see in Pennsylvania, uh, where we have these closed canopy hardwood systems. And when, you know, a lot of them are park-like in terms of their understory, you can see a long ways. And as a hunter sitting on a tree stand, you often like to see a long ways. But, you know, really, if you start thinking about what does a deer have to eat or bed in, in that understory is pretty limited. So while you could in, improve the amount of nutrition available with a, a summer food plot or a winter food plot, uh, you can improve not only nutrition, but also cover by doing some of those things even in forested systems. So you know what you see with that park lake uh, scenario is not necessarily the ideal habitat that you would want to manage for maximum productivity of your, of your deer in that community.
1: So when, we're ta- when you're talking about disking, you're not talking about like deep disking like what we used to do in, you know, the southern plains that caused the Dust Bowl. Uh, you're yeah. talking more just turning, you know, not even really turning over, just really breaking up the soil a little bit so mm-hmm. a plant can start growing there, right?
2: Right. So think about if you're planting a food pot, you know, you often will prepare the soil with the you know, tractor and a, a disc harrow or some, you know, different elements depending on what your preference is and where you're at, but uh, that sort of, that soil disturbance is can be really effective to promote some plants in the community. Now, obviously, in a food plot, you're planting the seeds for the plants that you're trying to grow in that scenario, but you could engage in old field management, for instance, which would be trying to promote a, a plant community that is typical in early succession, and a lot of those plant species are extremely valuable for wildlife and particularly deer and turkey, uh really respond well to those. So think about, you know, your your couple of acres here and there that you plant a food plot in, you can just as easily manage those plant communities for natural plants and not only get the food out of it that you'd be seeking with a food plot, but also encourage high quality cover that can be used as being area or nesting, uh nesting cover for turkeys.
1: Alright, so I'm gonna put you on the spot, but I think this is going to be an easy question for you to answer. If you had to choose between planting a one acre food plot or just disturbing the soil and letting the natural vegetation come back, which would you choose? If I
2: had to choose one? (laughs) Yeah. If you have to choose just one. uh, Well, it it depends on where you're at, but in a situation where we have up on hardwoods, a very little cover in the understory, I think the, the uh, old field community would be better and more attractive. And that's
1: and, just, because you know, they're, they're,
2: it's just because it's providing cover also. Right.
1: Right. So there's that. You're, you're in a not only in that the...
2: Yeah. You're in a system that you're really in a, a system that doesn't have that much cover and that is a limiting resource. in it because a magnet because of,
1: yeah. So not only, I mean, obviously anything that is uh, young and green is,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, appealing for a food source, but then whenever you're allowing it to be young and green and the ability to grow to, like you said, shoulder height, you're adding mm-hmm. not only just food source, but also some cover for them where exactly. most of most of our food plot, they're they're doing extremely, extremely well. They're going to get to be about calf high.
0: Yeah,
2: you're exactly right. It is not providing cover, especially a cool season plot that you typically hunt over. That's not providing high quality cover in most cases. And, uh, you know, the the oil can produce some really high-quality stuff, and it can do it relatively cheap, especially if you're not having any issues, you know, converting it to a native community. You know, if you had so an invasive plant species that you're trying to get rid of, you might need herbicides to help guide the community to the structure that you're looking for. But once you get it to that point, uh, you know, rotating disking and, and fire in that scenario can be really effective to manage that plant community for a desirable cover and food source.
1: Yeah, that's something that's very appealing to me just because, you know, food plot seed and the seeds that you're putting in, that can be very mm-hmm. expensive. Uh, sure. So the the idea of really just, I already have the implants, I already would have been disturbing the soil to be able to plant those seeds. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's normal operating cost and then just eliminating the what could be for us, depending on what we decide to plan, you know, a couple hundred dollars, uh, you know, savings, that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And honestly, we all, you, most people ask me questions like that, where you're making me choose between alternatives and ideally you have, you you, you use mo- multiple things, right? So you might have that, that, uh, plot that you plant in wheat or whatever you like to plant in your cool season plot to be super attractive during deer season and then adjacent to that, you could have really high quality cover where you have them paired together and it may decrease your cost and actually overall be more attractive to deer because you're coupling that really high quality food source with the high quality cover. I really like doing that kind of thing, especially in that kind of landscape because cover is such a rare thing.
1: Yeah, that's uh you know- the first we've been doing some food plots, some habitat work for almost ten years now on my family mm-hmm. property and you know, we had some invasive plants, you know, that yeah. you know, and grasses and things like that that we had to remove. So we used a lot mm-hmm. of herbicides. Uh, yeah. and my grandfather, who comes from farming backgrounds, uh basically we did everything the way he would have done it, uh, because sure. we're not farmers, so we're gonna default to him. And in mm-hmm. just this last couple of years, we've been trying to reduce herbicide use uh, a little bit and trying to yeah. be a little more natural and do what we've sort of been calling dirty farming, you know, allowing mm-hmm. the quote unquote weeds to grow along with the food plot. Uh, yeah. That that kills him inside a little bit because he likes to <laughs> see that perfect crop, you know, out there. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to explain to him that, you know, while it looks like weeds to us because it's not what we planted, I mean, the deer mm-hmm. will still eat it. Uh, yeah. Not to mention that if there's enough of it around, especially sort of buffering around some of our slightly larger food plots, it provides yeah. them a little bit of security and cover.
2: Exactly. And, and you know, an, another practice that I implement fairly commonly, and I think people in that part of the world are, are amenable to, is you know you might have your your acre and a half food plot or whatever where you want to plant, you know, your green patch, but The neighboring forest, you have the opportunity to practice things like edge uh, feathering where you could increase the sunlight getting into the forest edge and promote that plant community. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be all field uh, or all food plot, you know, and you're taking area away from your food plot to generate that cover. You could also do that on when you have that hard edge on the forest. So that could be, you know, using hack and squirt or chainsaw, to just trying to get more light into the forest floor directly adjacent to the plots.
1: Yeah, because if we really look at, especially the game species, we notice that they like a varied environment. They don't live sure. in monoculture. So if you mm-hmm. can plant a food plot and have old field management and have edge feathering and have, you know, a varied mixture of timber in your forest. I mean, that that's what's going to be best for all game species for the entirety of the year, correct? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah, really heterogeneity in plant community structure is critical. And, you know, when people are trying to start out, what what is the first thing that you do in that scenario? What I always tell them is look at your landscape. What are you in? And think about what is missing. And that would be a good place to start because, you know, if, if an animal is missing a particular component of its habitat, and you can provide that, and it's the only on the landscape that provides it, you automatically become top priority for that deer or, or turkey or whatever. So, you know, that's a good place to start if you're trying to think about what's missing. And, you know, the, the Appalachians, that normally is cover. You know, we always think about food, we'll provide food, but that's not really the component that's most important or most limiting in that system. And particularly think about that during hunting season when all of a sudden risk from, you know, predation risk from hunting has uh, become really high on the landscape with all the hunters in the landscape, cover becomes even more valuable then. So, you know, that's, that's the way that I think about it when I'm approaching a property and thinking about what do I need to start with to make this property more attractive and more beneficial to the species I'm managing for.
1: It's something that is practiced often in the South is mm-hmm. not something that's practiced very much in the Northeast. Um, probably has something to do with how segmented our pro- properties are, um, but also just sort of culturally as well. And, and that's you know using prescribed fire. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something that our state game commission has been using a little bit more often on game lands, yeah. but it's still. I mean, that, it's just a very small fraction uh, of the amount that could be done. So mm-hmm. uh, is it better to use a prescribed fire as opposed to disking? Or, and better is not necessarily the term I want to use, but I'm sure there's applications of prescribed fire sure. that would be uh, a better choice than than doing disking. So,
2: yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it really depends, and, and that is the tendency in the South there's been a stronger cultural value to fire it has been a stronger part of the communities here uh at least in the recent past than it than it has been there and so that there are th- some things that have happened in the recent couple of decades that are starting to change that and you're starting to see like your game commission use more fire and uh, that actually was up in pennsylvania couple weeks back and I was looking at some of the different things that were being done on some of the management areas and uh, they're starting to get pretty aggressive with some of these habitat management techniques and uh, that's probably not something that every you know the majority of people are used to seeing and that's one thing that, that's happening but uh, to go back to your question more directly prescribed fire is an, an extremely effective tool for a lot of reasons and it's really cost-effective. We typically would use that in tandem with disking when we're in an open field scenario. So in other words, you, you get benefits from having the the soil disturbance from the disc harrow and the disturbance to the plant community with fire. You get a little bit different response from those two things. and In particular, the disking is really good at Changing the plant community toward annual broadleaf plants, so annual forbs in particular. The burning is really good at managing the structure and keeping it perpetually in early succession. So if you put those things in tandem, you can keep the plant community in the structure that's desirable and have you know have uh, perennial grasses move in that make really excellent cover, and then use disking to augment that by improving the forb uh, component when it's needed so that's the way you typically use it in that system In the forested system fire is really effective as long as light isn't limiting in that forest so in other words if you're in a closed canopy hardwood system there's not you, you don't get nearly the benefit from using fire in that system that you would if you use some sort of canopy disturbance first So we're trying to get sunlight past the the canopy trees to the forest forest. floor. It's really as simple as thinking of it this way. What would you like to turn sunlight into? And for me, if I'm trying to manage for deer, I'm trying to turn sunlight into plants that they can reach, which is primarily plants that are less than shoulder tall. So that requires you to disturb the canopy in some way. Now, that may be through a timber harvest if you're in a situation where you can't go in and harvest timber because it's not uh, it's not merchantable or it's not uh, not valuable enough or uh, a lot of people have a barrier that they don't cut down any oak trees Uh, you know there are situations where you you may need some sort of non-commercial application to kill some trees but the main thing is if you really want to get the benefits of fire some trees have got to go and uh, you're trying you know so that you can get that sunlight to the ground when that is the case if you have the sunlight penetrating to the floor using fire becomes extremely effective at managing the plant community and it's pretty overwhelming honestly the the amount of of biomass that can be generated within reach that makes high quality cover and also out produces food plots on a per acre basis so uh, you know, it can be super effective in that context. In my experience working with landowners more up in that, that part of the world, uh, especially well, just up on hardwood uh owners, landowners everywhere really, uh people are afraid to damage trees with fire. And that certainly can happen. But if you look at oaks in particular, the the most valuable trees. They have a lot of characteristics that are actually fire adapted characteristics. So, for instance, like if you look at a white oak, the reason it's bark, is flaking like that and it's kind of thick in comparison to other oaks or other species is because that is a fire adaptation. Also, if you look at the way the leaves curl when they land on the ground, they actually are fire promoting species and they do better in the presence of fire relative to their competition. So. Uh, what I'm getting out of here is this is a system that actually had fire historically in it. Now, it's not as fire adapted as this you know like longleaf pine, which I'm in the range of right now here in the University of Florida. I'm right in the middle of that range. That is a more fire adapted species. I could kill pines with fire, but generally I'm using practices where I don't do that. You can do the same thing in that forest system where you're using fire responsibly and using firing techniques. That allow you to use fire for the benefits and not really have problems with the overstory mortality that people are trying to avoid. So, yeah. a couple of, of really good precautions, like if you have large limbs and you know, or a tree has been felled or something like that, you want to keep those away from the base of your really valuable trees. So, if you have that large woody debris laying around, if you can keep that away from the trees that you really don't want to injure like maybe you've got a prized white oak that produces really well every year you don't want to let those trees uh, get catch on fire near the base of a valuable tree like you know simple precautions like that and then using firing techniques I mean the literature on this is pretty clear-cut we can use fire repeatedly and up on hardwoods and especially oaks it's typically less than two percent of the oaks are damaged even after repeated fire And uh, one study that just came out showed that less than 1% of the board feed in a stand would be lost after five or six fires. So it it actually can be used really effectively in that system, as long as you take the necessary precautions. You know, we can kill trees, but we're trying not to, obviously.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, uh, when they think of fire, they think of, you know the wildfires that are happening out west currently, or some yeah. of the older generations in Pennsylvania remembers some of those wildfires mm-hmm. that happened around the Allegheny, what's now the Allegheny National Forest. Um, yeah. You know, it, very devastating fires. And we're not Absolutely. talking about uh, you know creating a fire like that.
2: Yeah. So if you ha- if you have flame heights that are over your waist, then you're burning too hot in the in this system. I mean, I'm talking about you know less than a foot flame height and you can use firing techniques. Now, They one problem is they take a little bit longer to persist across the landscape, right? To burn, you know, the 10 acres takes a lot longer to burn at low intensity than it would. But, uh, you know, a, a couple inch flame height is up to a foot, that has very little, if any, effect on overstory trees, even the ones that are not fire adapted.
1: And so as far as, you know, it- A landowner uh, that decides hey I want to try to go about this prescribed fire Mm -hmm. Um, you know and obviously it's gonna be different based on what state they're in you know what the regulations are but like what are some of the the big you know, have tos to prepare for and execute a prescribed fire
2: yeah well if if people have not used fire at all uh, I normally recommend seeking out some sort of training uh, Pennsylvania for instance has a prescribed fire council there are a lot of people on that that can direct you to formal training to to experience you know and and also become a prescribed burn manager so that's one thing that I highly recommend if you haven't done it also if you can find people that are using fire and get some hands on experience that's really good uh, also but there are a couple of basic things that you always need one you need to get a prescribed fire permit for the day and you normally call your your Forestry Commission, and they issue the permits. Uh, you need a fire management plan. It's uh, it sounds like more than what it really is, but these are some basic protections that you're you're getting in place to make sure in case something went wrong that you'd be protected. So, and that varies widely by state, but in general, uh, you need a prescribed fire our, our permit uh, when you're going to do this. Another thing that in my experience has been a real barrier for people is, you know, when I talk about prescribed fire, normally people immediately think I'm talking about burning 100 acres at a time. You know, we have to burn at a really large scale to make an impact on on uh, our wildlife species. And what the way I would rather you think about it, especially if you're inexperienced, think about like a food plot. You know, we typically, a one-acre food plot, people plant that and nobody thinks twice about it. So there's no reason you can't scale down to a level that you feel really comfortable with to start out and start seeing the benefits of that fire. And as you get experience and get more comfortable with it, then you can scale up if you want to. So uh, you may have seen some of the stuff. I, I put out a video with the Quality Deer Management Association a couple of years back called Bow Range Burning. Yeah. We In that experiment... <clears throat> I was trying to figure out how small can we go and still get a desirable effect on the behavior of wildlife, and particularly deer. And that was, I was thinking, man, if we could get it all the way down to what we can shoot in a bow range, so a 30-yard radius, that would be pretty cool. I wonder if deer would respond to that. And lo and behold, we did this experiment in uh, loblolly forest stands and in upland hardwood stands down in the central hardwoods region, and deer responded to it uh, pretty well even at that ridiculously small scale i mean we're talking about like a quarter of an acre so most people can comfortably burn something like that even if they're inexperienced so you start getting the hang of things and that's been pretty effective when i've been working with people that ha- don't have experience they get comfortable with it and then they start scaling up to where they can make a really big impact on on the habitat quality of of their desired species
1: so when we're thinking about trying to burn a small area, how, you know, like I'm thinking about our property. I mean, it mm-hmm. goes, we have grasses and then we have uh, leaf litter and we have sure. some early successional areas. Like how do I keep that fire in just that small area?
2: Yeah. So if you were in that old field, you could use dis- disking to do that, actually. So what you're trying to do is break up the fuel. And you can use mineral soil that won't catch on fire. So you may just have a, if you have an old field that you want to burn, you could put a disc pat, uh, path around it this, this down to mineral dirt. And that is super effective. One of the things that we did with uh, one of the experiments, so there, we were doing one-acre patches just in the middle of a hardwood forest. And we actually just went out with leaf blowers and blew about, you know, a five-yard wide path all the way around iron block that we wanted, and we lit off of that, and that was super effective. So even then, you don't even need equipment to do it really. And most people can get a hold of a leaf blower. So um, in the upland hardwood system, it's pretty easy, honestly, to to get in a an effective fire break. You know, maybe it's as simple as raking, especially if you're at a small enough scale. Um, you know, just main thing is you're thinking about getting rid of the fuel or you know some break in the fuel so that it can't jump to the the patch that you did not want to burn so that that can be really effective in in an open field it's really easy to use a tractor with a disc arrow if you have access to one to do that
1: and i'm assuming that part of that trying to ensure that the fire doesn't you know jump that fuel would be you have to sort of do this whenever it's uh, I guess a low wind day, because uh, obviously if it's windy and starts burning that fire, it can get you know away from you.
2: Well, the, really the the times that are more problematic in terms of the fire getting away from you is when you have a wind that are changing directions, especially if you have an unexpected change. So, if like, there's an afternoon thunderstorm, for instance, and it causes the wind to change directions. That's really when most problems come in. But uh, so, in other words, even if there's a relatively high wind we could use a backing fire that backs into the wind and it's still moving at a relatively low pace now you can when you have higher winds have more problems with spotting especially if the relative humidity is really low and that would be just where you know an ember or something picks up and it lands outside the plot uh, that's more of a problem when you have a really low humidity so that can definitely be something to worry about but that's part of going through that training and then developing that that fire management plan before you get that permit all of those things are stipulating the conditions that you're going to bend and everything and and the forestry commission will definitely chime in if there are things that are problematic you know that's part of what they're doing is making sure that you're making safe decisions so yeah generally you know a, a five to 10 mile an hour wind is not really that big a deal and it might even be necessary to help the fire carry
1: this is all crazy interesting to me I'm writing down notes as you're talking uh, (laughs) (laughs) about all this Um, so when it comes to deciding to use fire is there a specific time of the year that that might, And I know it's situational, but are mm-hmm. there, you know, certain times where it would be better? I'm thinking in my head, like, during the summer, whenever it's been real drought-stricken, um, you know, when, we, when mm-hmm. we're not getting much moisture, I feel like that probably isn't a good time. Plus, you know, if you would wait too close to hunting season, you know, you're not get, seeing that benefit during that initial season.
2: Well, uh, so let me uh, break down that. uh <clears throat> so that you can get some real benefits from fire at different times of the year. If you're in a closed canopy hardwood system, the humidity that's in the understory and the community of trees that are typically in most people's midstory, so we're talking about like red maple or or uh, sweet gum in some places, black gum, those sorts of trees, or they don't promote fire to carry with their leaf litter. So when you combine those two things, it's really difficult to get a hardwood stand to burn if it's closed canopy during the sun. In fact, it's almost not doable in in most cases unless you start getting really droughty. So a lot of times without getting that, that sunlight down to the ground where it dries out the fuels, you won't even have that as an opportunity. Now, with that being said, a lot of my research has been on timing and trying to understand how that influences animals differently based on the time that we set fire. And one of the things that's been super interesting for me is when we do use summer fire, it, the timing can be pretty important for, like, white-tailed deer during lactation, for instance. You know, it's a really nutritionally stressful time. And essentially when you apply fire, for about a six or eight weeks, a period after that fire occurred you get what's called a magnet effect so for instance that bow range burning we were quantifying how much that affected your shot opportunities during bow season and we ended up like 13 times as many bow shots that was because of that magnet effect that we're talking about so when you burn your top kill plants and then you stimulate seedbed also, the top killed plants and the seedbed responding to that fire is extremely nutritious for about six or eight weeks after it. Like, you know, ridiculously nutritious in comparison to the surrounding area. And that's where you get that magnet effect on deer It occurs with turkeys. Basically, every species I've followed in the eastern United States, they all do that. They all have this magnet toward it. So... If you think about it from that context, if you were willing to use fire for short-term benefit for hunting, you'd be trying to take care of that, take advantage of that magnet effect. So that would be more of a late fall timing that you would use that. Now, if you were just trying to manage a structure that's beneficial, so improving long-term habitat quality, maintaining a, a well-developed understory that's good for cover and good for, for food... That, you know, you can use different times of the year really effectively. So a dormant season fire typically would, you know, set fire during February or March. Uh, You know, you can use that very effectively to consistently maintain high-quality habitat. In some cases, you might want to use fire to shift the plant community to more desirable plant species. So, for instance, you may want to shift the dominance in the understory from woody plants to forbs. And in that case, the the late summer, early fall timing is really effective to do that. It really depends on what your objectives are and what opportunities you have to use it. In most cases, we would use dormant season for most objectives and that's perfectly fine. But there are some reasons that you might want to expand the burn window if you get the opportunity to more specifically target some of these other things.
1: Well, that's that's good to know. I didn't. I guess I did not realize how quickly the vegetation would respond to the fire, mm-hmm. and then how quickly the the wildlife would then respond to that renewed regeneration. That's
2: yeah. Just to give you an idea of that, of this is something I've been fascinated with. Um, I keep trying to push the envelope and say, all right, how quick can we get them back in there? You know. <laughs> so uh, a couple of times I've burned in places and put a like we literally. Uh, could see the fire line progressing when we're putting cameras back in behind it, trying to monitor wildlife responding as soon as we can. And as soon as the fire goes out, we get out of the area, trying to figure out how fast can we do it. And it's super common for turkeys to be in it the same or next day. I really? mean, they they see the smoke and they are there. And they oh. love it, especially in upland hardwoods. It's super attractive them. So all I, these I would dead bugs and seeds laying around. Yeah, it it really is amazing to me. The deer response is typically a little bit delayed because plants have to respond to it, and it takes a little while for them to grow. But even two weeks after, we still start seeing deer flocking in there, uh, really heightened use. And typically, that peaks at around six weeks, but that varies a little bit. You're talking about in the south, it's probably a few weeks longer up up your way.
1: <clears throat> right, well,
2: so one, Marcus, thing, one thing that always happens, though, is you always get a magnet effect on those species. Every time I've ever looked at it and then I've seen other research from other people and it, it's always the case.
1: <clears throat> so, Marcus, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so is there anything sort of major that we haven't covered yet that you really, as far as information, that you really want to get out there?
2: Yeah, I think especially uh, for people up in your part of the world, a lot of people don't uh, value the role of sunlight enough. You know, and, and thinking about how effective just getting sunlight through the canopy into the understory is—that that is an essential part of of a deer or turkey management plan, or it needs to be. And uh, you know, I think thinking about what you're turning sunlight into is a super valuable thing for people to start with. The other thing uh, I don't want to get too far in the weeds with it but I've done quite a bit with trying to understand um, oak acorn production and there are a lot of trees in the landscape that don't, you know, they they for whatever reason genetically are are poor as producers even when they're oaks. They're literally some that will never produce an acorn you know, those trees are just capturing light and turning it into wood. So that would be a good spe- a good specimen to target to get rid of. You can actually uh, kill trees, whether you're just doing a hack and squirt or you're actually getting a timber harvest. If you can uh, direct which trees get removed, you can actually increase mass production. So I, I just can't stress enough how important that sunlight is, and it's normally missing uh, in most of the upland hardwood systems I work in.
1: Yeah, I can second that uh, second portion of it because we had a um, shelter wood cut done on our family property mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And the consulting forester was telling us about, you know, they were taking mostly birch out uh, to use as pulpwood. Mm-hmm. But then he was letting us know that, hey, you know, I want to take out select oak trees as well. And we were very skeptical he mm-hmm. told us, that, you know, for the same reason, we were very skeptical, but since yeah. then, the acorn production on our property has uh, doubled or tripled. I mean, there's just yeah. acorns everywhere we used to, you know, <laughs> by the by the time you got to the end of October, there were no acorns on the ground because deer and turkey ate them all, um, right. you know, just a couple weekends ago when I was up at the property walking around, I'm finding acorns on the ground that haven't been eaten because it's just produced so much more by not having that competing tree only, you know, five or 10 feet away. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and uh, if,
2: if you're like me and you've actually been following trees, I mean, on my family's land in Alabama, I knew the potential of every single tree on the entire property just because I was following them for years, you know, and thinking about it. But a lot of people have favorite trees out in their stands that all, you know, are reliably producers or they're reliably attracting deer to it or whatever. You know, you can mark those and keep them. But that white oak that you go and check every single year and it's never had mast on it for the last 10 years, that one's really not doing much except catching light it could be turned into something you know, in the understory that's useful. Yeah, that's a that's a great point.
1: Uh, so if the listeners want to get in touch with you or even just follow some of your research, where would they be able to find that?
2: Well, for right now, uh, they can email me. It's really easy if you go on the University of Florida and search my name uh, to find my email and contact information. I'm happy to answer questions or anything like that. And I've just moved here, so I'm in the process of getting approvals and setting things up, but I'll have a social media uh, presence on Facebook and and, uh, Twitter and and several different things. I already have a Twitter account that's uh, at Dr. Disturbance. Uh, But, yeah, I'll I'll be developing those things, and and, uh, pretty soon there will be the UF Deer Lab to follow and and, uh, some podcast resources and things associated with that. So uh if they stay tuned in and follow some of that, I'll be uh, launching things here in the next couple of months, hopefully.
1: Yeah, well I'm definitely looking forward to that. I I love following what um you know, what the other Deer Lab has done um over in Missouri mm-hmm. and um so i I'm always excited to read more and learn more. Uh you know, I just I can't get enough of content. So that that's great. I can't wait to uh, see what you have in store for us.
2: Yeah, well, I appreciate it. You know, it's kind of the idea we we thought we should start spreading this out and and uh, bringing this information from multiple universities to multiple uh,
1: viewers to help spread the word. Well, Marcus, thank you for joining us. It was uh, this was a great talk. And uh, yeah,
2: I appreciate it. Good Thanks luck
1: in next year's hunting season.
2: Yeah, you too. I Appreciate it.
0: I don't know about you, but I definitely learned something new after speaking with Marcus. He is a wealth of knowledge on this topic, being a Southerner, using prescribed fire often has really just given him a whole wealth of experience to draw from. And then add in the experiences that that he's gotten over his career and uh you know, the knowledge that he's gained. It's just unbelievable how much I have yet to learn. <laughs> One of the things that I want to let you know about and just sort of reiterate uh, from what Marcus ended with there is that I'm excited for the fact that he's developing the UF Deer Lab. So they're going to have multiple social media platforms to to throw out some scientific knowledge about wildlife and wildlife management. Uh, He's going to host his own podcast called Fire University that will be launching in the summer of 2012. So we're getting close. Hopefully the pandemic hasn't really uh, changed that launch date. I am excited to learn on as often of a basis as he can throw out information on podcasts. It truly is something I want to learn how to use and the steps and the procedures And I really feel like it can be a great benefit to help return a lot of those nutrients. You know, using prescribed fire, doing light disking, obviously a little bit different than what we talked about last week uh, with Jason Snavely. Uh, But, you know, really Mother Nature puts down what needs to be there. So, uh, you know, there are definitely times we want to plant food plots. There's definitely times we want to sort of manipulate the land a little bit to make it more beneficial to us. But... There are also times where, you know, manipulating the land just slightly and letting nature sort of reset itself will have a huge impact. And uh, I really feel like that was the overarching theme of this episode this week. Join us again next week. We're going to take a little bit of a lighthearted approach. And uh, I think it will be entertaining, if nothing else. So until next week, if you can... Get outside and stay wild.